All right, good afternoon, church. Welcome to our uh, Sheepgate Fellowship service uh, for this Sunday. It is January 9th, 2022, which marks our uh, first in-person service for the year. So last week, uh, we had to go online. Uh, it's good to be back, and it's uh, hopefully all of you are well. I know some of us are still feeling some symptoms, um, feeling a little bit down. Um, obviously, it's not an ideal situation right now. Uh, but there's also every day many things to be grateful for and one of those things is god's word so let's get into it it's first corinthians chapter 10. we're going to be reading verses 23 to the first verse of chapter 11. so our text will be first uh, corinthians 10 verse 23 to the end of the chapter and then we're going to read the first verse 11 verse 1. Uh, and of course that first verse of chapter 11 is quite famous uh, in fact this whole sort of section of uh, 1 Corinthians is quite um, renowned. People are very familiar with what's in here. So let's read it together. Once again, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 to the first verse of chapter 11. I'll read from my Bible, and you can follow in yours. This is the word of God. <clears throat> all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Amen. This is the word of God. Um, Let's get to our Unreached People group of the day. And today our Unreached People group comes from Indonesia or come from Indonesia. They are the Sunda. They're about, this is a big group, okay? This is bigger than the population of Canada. 38.495 million people. So about 38.5 million people. Uh, only 0.05 Christian. 0.05% Christian, I should say. Uh, mainly Muslim. If you're familiar with Indonesia, very, very, uh, it's a very uh, heavily uh, Islamic nation, a very big stronghold for Islam, um, quite unique in many of its features culturally uh, and its history. If you're familiar with uh, Indonesian history, uh, it is quite interesting. So if you have some time, maybe you can look a little bit into that and pray for these people, the Sunda of Indonesia. Uh, globally, there's a lot happening, of course, COVID-19, Omicron, and whatever million other Greek alphabet <laughs> variants are going to come out. Um, at this point, I feel like every country is just trying to create its own variant <laughs> to lay claim to these things. But um, it's, uh, yeah, obviously a little bit, from the human perspective, a little dire, a little bit doom and gloomish, right? Uh, we're back to sort of where we were a year ago, it feels like. And um, it's obviously not a pleasant uh, feeling or sensation. But this means, as believers, we press on and we continue to pray and hope in Christ and continue to spread that joy to the world um, but globally there's a bunch of things going on one particular thing this morning that caught my attention uh, there's some massive protests for various reasons happening 
in, if you're familiar with Turkmenistan, um, which is located, uh, it's part of the former Soviet Union. Um, we want to pray for them because there's unfortunately um, a lot of deaths this, this day. There's 164 deaths um, today as a result of these protests. And so we'd like to pray for peace and resolution in that part of the world. Um, and obviously there are things in-house to them that are unfamiliar to us here in Canada, but uh, no reason why we can't pray for them. So we'll pray for those people, pray for the Church of Turkmenistan as well. Let's pray together as we begin uh, and we go into the Word. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your Word. We thank you for 1 Corinthians 10. We thank you for um, everything you are teaching us and continue to teach us. We thank you for um, just your Word uh, in this text and its uh, its profit to our souls. And we ask that it would continue uh, to be a fruit-bearing blessing within our lives. We also pray, Lord Father, for uh, the Sunda of Indonesia. We pray for their salvation, God, for they know not the true gospel. They know not Christ as Savior and as Lord. So, Father, we pray that that news would be proclaimed to them and that news would be pleasant to their ears, to their hearts, that they would receive you with open, um, with open minds. And, uh, Father, that hopefully for some, that they would come be saved. We also pray, Lord Father, for what's happening uh, on the other other side of the world, in um, the Turkmenistan region, and we pray for the, those people who are facing uh, upwards, you know, at this point, triple digits, 164 plus people are dead, and uh, we'd like to ask that hopefully there would be res resolution to that situation. Although we don't, I don't understand every intricacy of what's going on, whatever the case may be, uh, it's no reason for us. Uh, it cannot be justified to see that many deaths. Um, we just ask, Lord Father, for peaceful resolution in that area and uh, a gospel proclamation uh, to be made in that region. We thank you. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Today's sermon is entitled, Do All to the Glory of God. It comes straight from the text, as usual. And uh, that will be the central crux of uh, today's lesson and teaching. Do all to the glory of God. All, the variable all just means all, everything, right? This final paragraph in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians is a closing and summative statement. And it regards all that has been, it's been regarding, it regards everything that has been taught to the question of eating food sacrificed to idols that first began back in chapter 8, right? In chapter 8, that's where Paul began his response to this question, and it has extended three chapters long, right? So you can really get Paul's heart here. He really wants to make sure the central teachings in his response is conveyed right and the main crux of the lesson is to follow the guiding principle right the very um the, the the main principle which paul himself seeks to do and that is do all to the glory of god and everything that entails everything that entails now that's a nice principle to have in mind not just nice it is the principle to have in mind as a christian but what that looks like on a practical day-to-day -day application, as you may know, as a Christian yourself, can be difficult to decipher. It can be very difficult to decipher. Which is why so many Christians get caught up in doing what is proper, quote-unquote, rather than doing what is profitable. Or, I might use the word, appropriate. Legalists, like the Pharisees, had the intention of doing what is right, what is proper before God because of the exile they were facing, right, as Israel the nation. So they sought to obey the commands of God to a T, right, every single word. Not a bad endeavor at all. The endeavor was never wrong. But what gets lost in that human translation of law-keeping 
is the grand principle behind the laws. To do what is most profitable to God and to others. That's why when Jesus asked, what is the greatest of commandments? Love God and love neighbor. Right? To do what is most loving. So when Jesus teaches the parable of the Good Samaritan, for example, we learn that doing what is proper, right? I can't dirty my hands because I'm going to the temple, right? I can't, I'm a priest. I can't have blood on my hands. Is not better than doing what is profitable. Right? That's the central teaching of the Good Samaritan parable, right? So let us examine in today's text Paul's understanding of what it means to live the Christian life in pursuit of doing all to the glory of God. So I have five simple lessons I've kind of extracted from the text today or exegeted from the text. The first is, I mean, what I was just talking about, do what is profitable. That's the first thing we see. And then we'll see, that's verses 23 to 24, and then we'll see for conscience sake, what Paul means by that. What does Paul mean by doing for conscience sake? So we'll look at that in verses 25 to 29. And then verse 30, this is, I think, going to be really important for all of us. Caution in judgment. Caution in judgment. And then the fourth point, do all for the glory of God, for God's glory. Verses 31 to 32. And then verse 33 and verse 1 of chapter 11 We'll look at Paul's example, the imitators of Paul. Right? So we'll look at these five things and see what they teach. Verses 23 to 24, do what is profitable. Back in chapter 6, we learned of this very principle which Paul now applies and is echoing to this context of food sacrificed to idols. If you remember chapter 6, this is exactly what he taught. He, in fact, uses almost word for word these things. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify, right? That lesson, that central teaching was found in chapter 6, if you look back at it. We are to maintain love as our highest virtue in all things, right? Love of God and love of neighbor. They go hand in hand. Love of God naturally leads to love of neighbor, right? And love of neighbor naturally leads to doing what is most loving and profitable, not for ourselves, but for others, at least in Paul's view. Um, and so the most loving thing is to do that which profits most, profits others the most. Right? So the most loving thing to do is to do the thing that profits others the most. So the question we need to ask is, what does profit others the most? To the non-Christian, that would mean witnessing Christ to them, sharing the gospel. Right? Uh, I was actually, I mean, this is just a side note, but I was just watching, if you, if you watch the link that I sent you, I don't know if you watched it, but about an hour-long interview uh, between Babylon B and Elon Musk, and uh, it's actually generated a lot of controversy. Um, Babylon B is very right-wing politically and semi-conservative um, Christian organization, so they make a lot of, like, reform jokes and stuff like that. But um, at the end of that interview, if you watched it, there's about a six-minute segment where they share the gospel with Elon Musk. They share the gospel, I, I should say. And uh, it's pretty uh, mediocre to say, like, to be, like, as nice as I can be. Like, it's very lackluster in its presentation. And it's a missed opportunity, right? You're the world's richest man in front of you. Share the gospel. And it was very, like, hey, you know, you want to pray to receive Jesus in your life? You know, like, it was that kind of nuance. And uh, they faced a lot of criticism as a result of it. But... I only say that kind of as like a side, you know, funny thing to reference this point of Paul. 
the most profitable thing we can do for the non-Christian in our, in our lives, it could be family, it could be friends, it could be just acquaintances, is share Christ with them. And do it to the best of your ability. Now, you know, we might judge one another and say, well, that wasn't really great. That wasn't a good way to share Christ. That wasn't, sure, we can talk about the nuances later. But is your heart directed at sharing Christ to, brother, to people in this world? Um, one of the things, like when I was a campus minister that I talked a lot about, when I, when, of course, being on campus ministry, our, one of our central things is to share the gospel. One of the things or the feedbacks I always received from our non-Christian attendees was, it feels like you guys always have an agenda. You guys are always just like making friends with us just so that you can, you know, share your gospel. And they, they you know, gave me that feedback as criticism, right? As negative criticism, right? But I fired back at them or I responded by saying, the best thing I can give you is Christ. If my agenda is not to share Christ with you, I am not doing you any service. I can be your friend. Won't save you. I could be, like literally, I could like feed you for the rest of your life. It will not save you. The best thing I can offer you is Jesus. Why would I relent that? So if you see in me an agenda to share Christ with you, job well done. That's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm not offended by that. I'm offended by Christians who don't have that agenda. So to the non-Christian, and I think that's what Paul's aiming at here, witness Christ. That is the most profitable thing for them. And do nothing in your life that will diminish that task. To the Christian, then, for our fellow brothers and sisters, what is most profitable? It means doing that which edifies them the most, that builds them up the most, that leads them to maturity in Christ. Push them towards sanctification. Hold them accountable. Ask for accountability yourself. Seek refinement. Build them up. We saw this all throughout 1 Corinthians already, right? Remember all the lessons earlier on in this book? Paul's urge for the Corinthian church to build each other up. We see all of this coming together, all these lessons, right? Here in application, doing all things for the glory of God consideration we need to make in the choices of our actions in life is not just permissibility, but profitability. Our motivation is always love. Point number two, for conscience sake, verses 25 to 29. The second lesson in the text is centered around this repeated phrase that Paul uses in verses 25 to 29. He repeats the words, for conscience sake. What is in competition here is not whether or not certain foods are tolerable. That's not the central sort of I guess, concern of Paul, although he does, you know, we looked at last week, he does answer that very clearly, that you are not to eat this food. But whether or not the conscience or mind of the believer is in the right place, that's where his focus is. Where is your intention? Where is your heart? What is competing instead is the gratitude of one's heart against the legalism of one's heart. Consider the offering of the widow in Mark 12. As Jesus observes this woman give her offering of two copper coins, Jesus points to her and states to his disciples that she gave more than any other, including the rich folks who would come in and offer large sums of money. For what is hidden to the human eye is the heart that is at play. She gave all she had, whereas others gave out of large fortunes. They gave what they could expend, 
the money that they didn't need, so to speak. They gave with no heart. They gave with no heart to truly give. They gave simply to exercise a religious act and to boast of their wealth. Paul gives some examples of scenarios that arose, likely in the daily lives of the Corinthians, right? So he goes in through, you know, some specific scenarios that could arise. Very realistic, right? Paul gives examples of interactions with Christians and non-Christians, being invited into homes and etc., and going to the marketplace and buying meat, which he obviously did. And in each scenario, he advises to exercise the grand principle that he has been teaching, to uphold love, to do what is profitable, to act with a clear conscience, as long as your intention is centered around that. If you find food in the market or are given food to eat, then eat and enjoy in gratitude for all is the Lord's. Do not seek its origin or context simply to seek out a point of contention, but rather act in gratitude for the food that has been provided, both by God's grace and the hospita hospitality of another. For what would it profit, profit you to deny a man's hospitality just to keep a diet? But if that man informs you of the food's nature and it, com and it compromises you in your faith, then do not eat it because he has done a good thing for you in informing you so that you would know uh, and that they would know that you take your faith seriously. So it's a chance to witness Christ powerfully. You can refrain from eating to set an example to them. So then both yours and their consciences will be safe. So what is central though is not so much the legalistic component of whether you should or should not in these situations. What is central to Paul is asking the grander question of um, not doing good before God. It's, it's our heart. Where is your heart? Right? Because our actions in every single specific situation is going to be hard to decipher. And Paul recognizes this difficulty, right? Even as a human and as a sinner himself. There will be situations where, yes, we're not to eat this food, but because we don't know its origin, we might accidentally eat this food. But that doesn't mean you should live in, like, despair because, oh, woe to me, I've eaten this food, right? But to look at it on a grander level, to see all things more clearly, and to see the things that we don't typically look at, and that is the heart. Where is your heart? Okay? Um, and we're going to get into this, but this is this is... One of the central reasons we fall into the problem of casting unfair judgments against one another. Here's a quote by Gordon Fee. And I believe this to be true. Knowledge and rights lead to pride. They are ultimately non-Christian because the bottom line is selfishness. Freedom to do as I please when I please. Love and freedom lead to edification. They are ultimately Christian because the bottom line is the benefit of someone else. They may be saved so again we're upholding the grand principle here third point caution and judgment look at verse 30 today to read it let's read it for you if i partake with thankfulness why am i slandered concerning concerning that for which i give thanks one theme that we have observed throughout first uh, corinthians is paul's concern over the judgment that is being placed both on him and others on the wrong premises by the Corinthian believers. We've already observed this, right? We've already seen Paul address how they judged him unfairly on the basis of things that are not really priority in the faith, right? Because of what? Because of the cultural skews and biases that exist. The Corinthians based their judgments of others on what? On things that they valued. They judged other people's faith 
on the things that they valued rather than the things that God values. Paul has warned them thus, and us as well universally, that judgment in the church is to be made on what? Correct grounds. You remember First Corinthians, like earlier on in First Corinthians, we said judgment in the church should be present. That's how we hold each other accountable. But that judgment is not to be made on the wrong grounds, right? It needs to be made on the correct grounds and for loving purposes. We are to judge one another, but for the purposes of what? What Paul has already stated, to build each other up, to edify, not for the purposes of, and this is usually the case, breaking each other down, bringing each other down. We want to see people fall. And I don't know why we have this tendency. I mean, I do know why we're sinners. The caution extends into today's conversation on the matter of this food. If we make the call that all food sacrificed, sacrificed to idols can, can be eaten, then proper judgment can't be made when it ought to be. So if Paul just came out and said, yeah, you guys just eat all this food. Then people just eat this food mindlessly without thinking about repercussions. And we've already seen some of those repercussions that could exist. Vice versa, if this food is deemed to not be eaten, which Paul has said, right? Paul has said, do not eat this food. That anyone who does so with or without knowledge will be judged on the action and not the heart. So it'll just be, ha caught you, eat, buying food, you know, sacrificed idols in the market, caught you, right? Red-handed. So although Paul has made it clear that such food is not to be sought after or eaten by the believer in any context, if knowledge of the nature of the food is known, that when believers see each other eating such food, we need to consider the full context of why someone might be eating such food, rather than jumping to conclusions that we assume in our minds. That we are very prone to do. And this may seem like a very, very specific thing. And it is. It's, I mean, it's something that many of us don't really deal with today, right? It's a very, very specific thing. But if you apply this central sort of casting of judgment without context to other things in life, you will quickly realize that it's a very, very common thing we see in the church. It's a very common thing. Here's one of the unfortunate realities and things that are a reality in the church. And it's a reality of the testimony of many people who have left church that they faced unfair judgment. Now, in some cases, they, have, they may have been judged correctly and rightfully, and they're just bitter about it. But it has been the experience, I think, likely in your life and my life, for some of, us, some of the people around in our lives, that many times people are misunderstood. We are misunderstood. But vice versa, we misunderstand others. We do it all the time. We take actions out of context. We judge solely the action itself. That is right. That is wrong. Do not do this. Do not do that. And that's not entirely wrong, right? It's not entirely wrong. But here's the worst part. The worst part is this, is that we look to judge negatively. We seek to judge negatively, to bring people down, more than we look to judge for positive reasons. And that's where I see the heart issue. For when we rebuke, for when we correct, for when we judge and we criticize, seek in your own heart where that's stemming from. Sometimes I feel like churchgoers are like fans of sports teams. Fans of sports teams are 
just toxic people who are always looking to criticize for the sake of criticism, negativity, building negativity, bringing people down. You suck. You did this. You d- you're not good at this. You're bad at that. Get r- you know get rid of this person. And it's just this constant criticism, right? I mean, fans of everything are like that, really, on the internet. But I mean, you know, like the church ought not to be like that. The criticism we offer one another, right? The true like. The, the judgments that we ought to be seeking for one another is not purposed in bringing people down, but in building each other up. But how do we do that wisely and lovingly? That's an important question we need to ask. But too many times the trend in church is to judge for negative reasons, not for positive. Let me ask you if this is a, is, if this is a reality in your own, in your own heart. You get more joy in calling someone out on sin than you do in rejoicing with someone who has overcome it. And that is, that's not good if that's the case, right? Yes, we're all sinners in need of repentance and we need to hold each other accountable and build each other up. At the same time, we need to encourage and rejoice with one another in the small victories that we have in life. Why, why, why do we enjoy seeing others fall? I hope that that is not the center of your heart. For God's glory, verse 31 to 32, there are two imperatives that are given here, tied together. And this is the framework, it provides the framework which the Christian functions within in life. Do all to the glory of God, give no offense to others. Let me try to clarify these two things as one flows from the other. Doing all to the glory of God is firstly a recognition on the believer's end that all things are for the glory of God. This is why, like, when people ask, like, problem evil question, right? People always ask me, like, why does a good God allow bad things to happen? Why is there cancer? Why is there AIDS? Why is there this, 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 that? Why is there COVID, right? And my response to them, and to the unbeliever, this will be foolishness, as Paul has already told us, and as the Bible teaches us. I always tell them this. I say, for the glory of God. And they'll say, well, that's ridiculous. A God who, do, who allows these things to happen for his glory, that seems evil, that seems, ma- you know, that's, that's a maniac. That's tyrant, right? Say, well, you know, let the story end. A lot of times, I mean, not a lot of times, all the time, we are living in the, we're living in the present, so we don't know end to all of this. We just simply don't know. Do all to the glory of God. God has universally decreed all things before he created. All things to be a certain way for the purpose of his glory. I believe centrally and critically that all things are for that purpose and for that sake. But it also gives me hope and reason in all things. Why did that person die from a car crash? For the glory of God. Why did this happen? For the glory of God. But I can also focus on the positives. Why do these great things happen in in the world? For the glory of God. Why does the church exist? Glory of God. Why do I exist? For the glory of God. Right? And when we say, act on love or do what is profitable, we mean to say, do that which is most demonstrative of God's love. Do that which brings others closer to God. We live out then a theocentric life that is centered on God his will, his concerns, his heart, his ultimate glory.
We move farther and farther from the self and closer and closer to God. The second imperative, which flows from this first, is that we give no offense to others. This is not to say that the Christian and their beliefs and our gospel will not be offensive to others. It will be by nature. This is not to say that. We regularly talk about how the gospel is sort of naturally offensive to the sinful creature because it imposes on them restrictions and they don't want those restrictions. And it also points to them as the problem, as sinner. So yes, the gospel truth, right, in content is offensive. But what Paul is talking about here is the example of the believer's life. That although what we may be, uh, that what we believe may be offensive to others, our lives and our conduct in life should not seek to offend others. So to promote the gospel as truth, our lives are to reflect the best possible version of that truth lived out in the sinner's life. Paul is not talking about offense in the sense of hurting feelings. He understands even doing the right thing at times could hurt other people's feelings. But he's talking about giving offense to Jews, to Gentiles, in that they will cease to hear or see the gospel in us. See, even if we do something offensive, if they can point to us and say, well, he did that thing because he's a Christian, don't take that as an offense. If you did the right thing because, and the reason is clear to the Christian and to the non-Christian that you did that thing because you're a Christian, and it just so happens to offend a group of people, it's fine. You're standing on gospel grounds, on the truth, and defending the faith. I think that's fine. Like, I'll give you an example of, like, you know, those, like, those bakers who refuse to, you know, bake a cake for a same-sex couple because they are conservative Christians, right? Yeah, that offended an entire community of people, which were terrified of offending, but at the same time stood on the grounds of their convictions on biblical faith, right? That's something to applaud, not something to say, oh, well, you shouldn't do that because it offends people. If we navigate Christian life just thinking like, everything we do, we have to do so it doesn't offend anyone, you're no longer Christian, right? But it's not to seek out offense for the purpose of offense without reason. If they cannot see behind your offense, the reason for it, okay, well, they did that because they are a convicted Christian, well, then you've lost the point, right? They don't understand why you're doing these things or why you believe these things or why you're conducting your life in that way. You've failed in a greater way, right? We've failed monumentally then. We're just offensive at that point. Here's where I, I, I think if I were to reword this, I don't mean to reword scripture, obviously, but if I were to word this in a way that makes sense for us, it's to say this. Don't be so caught up in proclaiming what you stand against or making known what you stand against. What you stand against will be made known just by being a Christian. Make sure the world knows what we stand for. Okay? I think that's, like, the simplest thing. A lot of my, like, gay friends, they always say, well, you guys hate this, you guys hate that, you guys are against this, you guys are against that. But I say, that's great that you know that, but let me also tell you what we are for. And we are for these things. And it might surprise some people because all they know are the sort of, you know, the general, like, sort of cultural understandings of Christianity. They don't understand the crux of it, the heart of it. They don't understand the love thy neighbor, turn your other cheek. Like, they don't understand that part. They don't understand the true teachings of Jesus. 
actually, interestingly enough, in that Babylon Bee like interview with Elon Musk in the gospel presentation, one of the things that Elon Musk respond like one of the ways that he responds to the question of you know do you receive Christ as Savior and Lord, he says, I like who Jesus was and what he taught, and he actually lists things that Jesus taught. He says, well, you know, Jesus taught you know to love neighbor, you know, to seek good for the poor and the needy and the blah 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 blah, blah right? I was like, oh, okay. So he knows something. Well, that's a start. To know what we stand for is just as important for the world to know as much as what we stand against. So these two things need to be conveyed, right? So Paul's a concern here, once again, right, is the glory of God and the proclamation of the gospel to unbelievers that they would be saved. Tom Schreiner, or Schreiner writes this, In every dimension of life, believers must live to the glory and honor of God and living for the glory of God is closely tied to living for the benefit and salvation of others. Finally, Paul's example in verse 33 and verse 1 of chapter 11. Paul ends with a statement that he similarly made back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, to imitate him. In those words, not to imitate him as an end, but to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. So ultimately, he's just saying imitate Christ, right? Paul is appealing to his pursuit in life as a follower of Jesus as a reason to see in him a worthiness of imitating ourselves. We imitate Paul in his imitation. Ultimately then, our pursuit is one and the same as Paul's. And that pursuit is to be like Christ. Be like Christ. Like how Paul kind of wraps all of this up by saying, be like him. Be like Jesus. Follow him. His example not just in a few areas of our lives, but every area of our life, right? Thistleton writes, the phrase suggests that Paul's apostolic witness to Christ into apostolic lifestyle should offer a pattern or break model in terms of what he has just specified, namely, aiming at glorifying God, at avoiding damaging anyone, and at putting the interests of others before one's own. And those are three really simple things to think about, right? Okay, glorify God. Don't offend or damage anyone and put the interests of others before our own. Right? That's like every Christian sermon you've ever heard, right? Here's the problem. It's stupid hard to do, right? Why? We naturally glorify ourselves. What do we love to do? Damage others. And what's the third thing? We are so selfish, we put our own interests before everyone else's. It's the nat- three natural areas, like the three natural instincts of the human, the sinner's condition, right? And Paul's flipping it and saying, no, 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 no. Believer, the glory of God, don't damage others, love others, right? Love God, love others. Put others' interests before you. It is really hard to do. And that's why it's in Scripture. It's in Scripture because it knows, God knows, it's the hardest thing for us to do. That's why you need to be, and I need to be, reminded of this all the time. Why? Because we fail at this every day. Every day, we fail. Not to say that it isn't our pursuit. We need to grow in these areas. Hope the day when we are able to achieve these things. In conclusion, what we see in the summative statement of Paul is his adherence to the Christian liberty that the Corinthians enjoyed um, and that it's motivated by very different variables. Right? So both parties declare liberty in Christ, freedom in Christ, to do this, to do that, to do all things, right? 
eat food no matter what. Like, all food is tolerable or permissible, right? Yes, we all have this liberty to choose and exercise decision-making in different situations. But what cannot be lost in this liberty is that we are to be motivated by the things of God. Our pursuit of doing good is often tainted by the desire for self-righteousness and boastful legalism. Rather, doing what is right is to be, made, is to be motivated by love of God. It's the contrary, to be motivated by love of God and love of others. And the doing of all things for what? Glory of God. Like many other things in life, the Christian tends to ruin them by making them about the self. Rather, we ought to live out our lives for the sake of God, for the sake of others. So I hope that this has kind of helped you structure in your own mind a framework to live within, right? The framework of doing all things for the glory of God and doing all things to, for the sake of others, right? Putting others' interests before my own. What is profitable for God, profitable for others. Do, like, live within that framework. I hope that that's kind of, we've built that structure within your mindset. In your heart set, if you will. Right? I leave you with a quote by R.C. Sproul. In the New Testament, love is more of a verb than a noun. It has more to do with acting than with feeling. The call to love is not so much a call to a certain state of feeling as it is to a quality of action. I believe this. I believe it true because I know this, tr- this is very true of myself. Kind of embarrassing to admit it as a pastor and perhaps your pastor which is this, I don't naturally love you, <laughs> right? Um, not to say you're unlovable, but there are qualities that exist in every person that are unlovable. And I'm sure there are unlovable qualities about me to you, right? So do I just go, I don't really love that person. I don't feel anything about that. So yeah, you know, I'm their pastor, but I'm not going to do anything about it. <laughs> That's ridiculous, right? I mean, the, com- the great commandment to make disciples of all nations is not predicated on, first, I hope you feel something for the nations, and I hope you feel something for the unreached, and then go make disciples. No, it's, no, go and make disciples of all nations, right? There's, there's nothing in there about feel this way before you do this. Serve the, feel this way about the church, and then serve. Feel this way about Jesus, and then start serving in this area. No. Right? That's why immediately when people come, like, you know, when I was on campus ministry, they'd be like, oh, I feel like I'm, like, I should be doing this. I'm like, no. <laughs> like, it, that's going to disappear. Like, in a month, right? Like, this is, like, maybe, like, right after a conference or some mission trip. They're super stoked about Jesus. It's like, oh, I feel like this is the right thing to do, so I want to do it. No. <laughs> okay? I don't care what you feel, right? Are you convicted to serve the Lord? And I don't want no feeling conviction, right? It's like, are you to truly understand that our life is to be lived out in action in service of the Lord, regardless of how you feel? On days when you don't want to do it, on days where you refuse to do it, on days where you don't want to see people, when you don't love people, when you don't want to talk to them, will you still love them? And will you still love the Lord? That's a hard life to live. And that is a life we're all called to as believers. Let's pray. Let's reflect on what God has taught us.